Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon. I'm here with my friend and co-founder of the world's greatest sales training company, John Kaplan. Cap, good morning. How are you? Wow. Thank you for that, Johnny. Thank you. I'm, I, hey, bud. You're welcome. I'm really, really excited that you got this guest on. Uh, we It is really good timing. Yes, yes, me too. So, Cap, our guest today is a serial entrepreneur. He has started multiple companies and was co-founder, CEO at Reflect Technologies, which was acquired by Puppet. And at Puppet, he was the VP of user experience and later the VP of growth. And after Puppet, Alex started another company named Endgame, which allows observation of customer free trials or paid trials and prioritizes customer use signals so the sales force can act on those signals and obtain revenue quicker. Cap, please help me welcome the CEO of Endgame, Alex Bilmis. Alex, thank you again for joining us again. We're really, really looking. Johnny and I have been uh, really trying to get a great expert on this topic on the podcast, and uh, we know you're going to be a home run, so welcome. Well, thank you. It's an honor to to be on here with the both of you. I've been listening to you for quite some time and uh, very, very excited about today. Thanks, Alex. So as Cap said, you know, we've been wanting to give our listeners an overview of PLG. For those of you that don't know what PLG stands for, it's product-led growth. And the reason we want to do it is there's a lot of noise in the market surrounding PLG, what it really is, you know, how do you really define it? How do you really use it? What products, you know, should it be used for? How do you implement it? Who plays the role? Who, who owns it? So, Alex, for our listeners, let's start with the basics. Like maybe first, what do you think PLG is or what is the real definition of PLG and maybe how it's a little different today than the real definition? Yeah, let me go way back and start at the beginning because uh, a little bit of how I got into the space might help set the stage for what I think PLG is and how I think about it. Perfect. So I started as a designer long, long time ago. Uh, building products. Uh, I used to call PLG way before PLG was a term building products that don't suck. That was my naive, uh, you know, early perspective where I thought the product would be so great. People could just come in and use it and share it with their friends. And then all of a sudden you get all this momentum and virality and, and then the business just builds itself. And as I got a little bit uh, further in my career, I realized it wasn't always that simple. You, you, you talked a little bit about my background at Reflect and Puppet. Well, a lot of my time there was spent trying to figure out how to orient a sales motion around how developers were using product and how to connect those dots, uh, which is really, really tricky. So uh, I guess my my definition of, of PLG might have gone through a few iterations. Uh, but look, the, the definition of PLG is effectively uh, that the product is the primary driver of your go-to-market. And that takes a few different shapes. I think 
you could really say that you're doing PLG if you're influencing acquisition, retention, monetization, or expansion. And so a lot of what we hear in the market in terms of the different perspectives or the different definitions really depend on your point of view or your philosophy. And I sort of bucketed this into two kind of orientations. You have the PLG fundamentalists, uh, sort of PLG face tattoo. You have to do everything through the product. Uh, humans can't even interact with customers in any meaningful way unless it's purely from a customer success perspective. And then you have the other side, which is sort of what I would call the opportunistic mindset or philosophy, which is, hey, we have a free trial, which means we're doing PLG. And PLG is pretty flexible in terms of the definition. Now, it really depends on your product and it really depends on your market and it really depends on your business. So I would say PLG is a spectrum and you could be doing a little bit of it, meaning you could be applying PLG strategies in certain areas of your business, such as acquisition or retention, or you could be really, really sophisticated and far along and that means you're using PLG tactics for more and more of your business over time. So I don't think there's a, there's sort of a binary, you are PLG or you're not, you're typically on a spectrum doing either a little bit of it or a lot. Right. Even though I think in the market, when I listen, most people are focused on the acquisition part. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's spot on. Yeah. So let's, you talked a little bit about products. Let's talk about, or can we talk about which products seem to make sense for PLG and which ones may not make sense for PLG based upon different parameters of the product? Yeah, so let's start with the basics. If your product is very easy to use, if it's easy to get started with, if it provides value to a single end user, and again, that time to value is very short, uh, and the price is low, meaning it doesn't really make sense for a salesperson to engage, it's obvious, right? That's a sort of slam dunk product for PLG. So let me give you a few examples. Calendly, right? You, as anybody can really go and sign up for a Calendly account. You can go and send somebody an invite. You don't have to talk to anybody. You get a ton of value as a user immediately. You get that dopamine hit. So uh, it's easy to get started. So that's kind of a prototypical, very easy to get started with PLG example. And it actually makes a lot of sense because by the time you get a salesperson uh, to engage, the usage has to be significant enough for there to be a deal size that's that's even worth sales effort. Um, right. Then on the other side, uh, you've got what I would call, uh, you know, more transformative products, and those are harder. So if if you have to manage change in your organization, uh, that's always tricky. You need a sales process to help roll something out um, with a little bit more sophistication attached to it. If your deal size is larger, that makes it tricky, uh, and if you're fundamentally changing user behavior, it's more difficult to do that purely with product than it is with product and people that help facilitate that change. And that's something that maybe isn't as common of a discussion point in terms of PLG. Right. So if I have a, if I have a product that is a platform and it might, or even just a, a, it could be a single product, doesn't even have to be a platform, but it interfaces to multiple users, maybe in different disciplines of the organization in order to work. And maybe even has to be interfaced into other products. That might take, a, as you talked about before, time to value is really significant. And that might not be a good fit for PLG. Yeah. I mean, let's look at a few examples, right? Uh, I'll bring up, say, 
Clary. Super powerful product, does a lot, can fundamentally change the way that your sales team operates, but hard for a single user to come in and set it up because you just have to coordinate across different departments and stakeholders. And there are certain decisions that need to be made organizationally for it to be successful. Similarly, actually, I'll put Endgame in that bucket. We uh, don't have a very PLG-like motion today because a lot of what we do is very consultative and we help companies figure out how to roll out product-led sales across their organization. And that touches a ton of different teams. There are data questions, uh, analysis questions. And so when you when you look at it from that perspective, the more transformative the product is for your business, the harder it is for a single user to get up and running quickly. Therefore, the harder the PLG motion is to execute against. Right. So one, if, if it has to interface with a number of different disciplines, one, if it has to interface into a number of different products, extends the time to value, which could be not a great fit for PLG. And then the second thing I think you touched on was if it fundamentally changes the way in which you do business. So the methodology that you use today, that could make it more difficult to get people to grasp it and use it inside an organization. Yeah. Humans are, humans are uh, tricky. Anything that requires, <laughs> anything that requires interfacing with humans or interacting with people always adds a layer of, of complexity. And that's where, uh, sales teams are really helpful in navigating that. So if someone comes to you today at Endgame and says, Hey, we want to do PLG, Alex, you know, help us use your product for PLG. What are some of the questions that you're going to ask before you can, before you help them decide whether or not PLG is a good fit for their product? Yeah, good question. So for Endgame specifically, we tend to focus on the sales side of PLG, and it's a very intentional decision. And if you're really trying to figure out, hey, can I do PLG? That's a, that's a product question and a product market fit question. And I tend to take time out of my day to help uh, CEOs or, or founders or executives work through that. But as a business, we don't spend a lot of time particularly on the how do I do PLG uh, because it requires that you make changes to your product. It requires that you have the right products, as we just talked about. It requires that you fundamentally change pricing in many cases. Uh, it requires a number of different things to fully go uh, into effect. Now, where we see a huge opportunity is for a PLG company who's done some amount of that work already. How do you better tie in the sales efforts to accelerate the sales process mm -hmm. using uh, a lot of that product data? So we actually call that product-led sales. Uh, which is PLG plus sales. Uh, and to your point, uh, you know, it a little bit varies on where the company is in their maturity. You know, are they just starting with PLG, in which case they're asking for how to accelerate it? Are they already doing, you know, 50 to $100 million in terms of self-serve revenue? And now they're trying to add a sales motion to help accelerate that uh, revenue stream and, 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 you know, turn some of those self-serve customers into larger, uh, larger deals and opportunities. Uh, and so, it really depends a little bit on where the company is. Um, the thing that we tend to spend a lot of time on is helping companies orient around uh, an ICP for a product-led perspective, how to segment their customers. Uh, and so a lot of that will be kind of a different orientation for teams because uh, traditionally you uh, would think about ICP as much more firmographic or here's a company, they're within a particular you know size and they have certain characteristics that are indicative that they're going to be a good customer. And those are typically third-party intent data, firmographic, what have you. In a product-led motion, a lot of the effort is trying to understand what your best customers have done and using data to help create an ICP 
based on their behaviors, based on their characteristics. And so you start looking at product fit as the number one way that you prioritize because you're able to tell based on product usage data how good of a customer uh, someone is likely to be. Right. So I might have firmographic data that helps me segment my customers. Then I have to build an ICP. And then when I build my ICP, what I hear you saying is, I have to really factor in user behavior to understand their propensity to buy, right? And buy now, and especially if I'm going to put a salesperson on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you start, even from a customer segmentation perspective, to your point, you start with that, you know, ICP fit and you look at firmographics, then you can look at behavior by looking at aggregating user, user data across the entire account as an example. So let me give you an example of a uh, discovery process, uh, sort of pre-product list sales and then post-product list sales. So traditionally, you're talking to a champion uh, or a buyer and you're asking them a ton of questions about their business and how they want to use your product and how they are using your product today and what teams are doing with the product because in product-led companies, you already have usage in most of the accounts that you're going to go in and talk to. And so a product-led sales orientation lets you validate what the company is doing using empirical data, meaning you can tell how people are already using your product, what the use cases are, who the mm -hmm. people are, who the champions are, who the buyers are, uh, by looking at behavioral characteristics and, and behavioral signals. Uh, good, good example of that is if somebody is inviting a lot of users to the product, they're mm -hmm. likely to be a champion. Yes. Because they're sending a lot of invites, right? If somebody's viewing the billing uh, section of your uh, product, that's, that's, that's a really, really strong signal, right? Or that's a little, that's a good flag. That's a green flag. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So it just changes, uh, you know, how you think about, uh, things like ICP and, and segmentation uh, and propensity as you called out. Yeah. Hey, Alex, how, in your experience at Endgame now, how many companies go in with pure play PLG get, um, ICP information, get product information, um, now have the ability to, I don't want to say pivot, but have the ability to extend into a platform. When I've seen that before, I've seen some people do it really well. And then I've seen some companies that in a sense, they have two different sales motions yep. where they're trying to get to like an economic buyer in retrospect, that probably could have gotten involved in the PLG to understand what data was getting created, um, what usage was, or what productivity was really going to look like. And then there was a, a story of strategy. I've seen companies struggle with that because it's like they have to start all over again and they have to sell. They have their product in there and now they have to start all over again selling. Could you kind of talk about that a little bit and probably put more technical terms around what it is and what you do about it? No, it's a, it's a great question and great call out. And the short, the short answer is um, the particular motion that you're describing is um, what we call sell, sell through the janitor. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to get to the buyer. And uh, one of my uh, favorite quotes by uh, a philosopher named Seneca is, if you don't know what harbor you're sailing for, no wind will get you there. So yeah. very, very important to understand who you're trying to get in front of and what your sales process looks like. Now, how you get there can be a little bit more flexible. 
And so what we see a lot of is identifying paths, being able to look at overall usage, identifying pockets, and doing two things from that perspective. So first is going through a champion. We just talked about somebody who sends a lot of invites. Go talk to that person, figure out how to get in front of the buyer and what to tell them. When you get in front of the buyer, bring a data-driven story, actually show how the company is using the product, where the use cases are, what the license utilization looks like, what the features are. And so it gives you a much more concrete story uh, when you actually do finally get in front of the buyer, because you can you can basically tell them exactly how their entire organization is using your product today. Now, yeah, if if um, you know, if I take a step back and sort of look at you know how companies implement product led sales across the organization and kind of like integrate it into their sales process, I think you know we started off talking about prospecting, you know, into as an example. Uh, a certain set of buyers, champions, identifying the core people, the ICP, um, and the personas that you want to go after. Then we talked a little bit about discovery, meaning if you're talking to somebody, can you balance that conversation with quantitative empirical data on usage? Now, a lot of what we see happen from there is, all right, well, if I get somebody into a technical evaluation or a POC, can I monitor their usage? Can I look at signals? Uh, that'll, you know, tell me if the deal is likely to move forward or not. If, if somebody's telling me they're logging in and using the product and testing certain features, but I can tell if that's not true, like it gives me some more information, right? Now you get to commit. And so one of the things, and we touched on this a little bit is propensity with product data, you have such incredible insight into how likely a deal is to close because you can see all of the historical data, all of the historical conversions. And so when you're providing context on the likelihood of the deal to close, you're doing it again, based on empirical data versus just sort of like what the customer is saying. And then from there, you kind of get into expansion type use cases as well. And so, you know, you're looking at, you know, new workloads, new teams popping up, uh, you know, new products rolling out, uh, John, to sort of touch on your earlier question around you know, going from a single product to a platform or expanding into additional use cases, you have the opportunity to, uh, you know, use that usage data to kind of go and get more of the organization into your product as well. How prepared do you feel? I'm going to ask, uh, Johnny's asking the great strategic <laughs> questions around PLG and I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit more, um, and I think it's good to break it up this way. Um, the, the tactical part. So when I think about PLG yep. and I think about um, the sales motion with great data on usage and insights. You can provide people insights. It's kind of a dopamine effect. Like I call it the, the iPhone example. Uh, when those when those things come out and they tell me, here's all the new things that you can do in the phone. And it's like, you got a new phone. There's more things that I can do with what's already in my hand. And I don't know what that's called, but there's some dopamine effect that says, I've already got it. It's great. Uh, I can expand my usage of it. Yep. Now, the question I have is around telling versus asking. So where I see people get in trouble in this industry, uh, not an industry, in the segment, if you will, is the difference between telling people about their usage 
or having the data and insight about their usage, asking great discovery questions and sharing insights. Could you comment a little bit about that? And is that something you guys do at Gainsight? No, at Endgame. Excuse, excuse me. I'm sorry. Endgame. Oh, Gainsight's also terrific. I know. Uh, 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 Apologies. Uh, and the team over there. And uh, I would actually say uh, not not an unreasonable question on both sides. Gainsight is sort of like looking at that from a customer success perspective uh, in a certain way. Endgame is a lot more uh, sort of revenue sales oriented in terms of identifying uh, signals, uh, just in terms of where we fit from a product perspective. Now. Uh, to, to, to answer your question around how much you tell, uh, yeah. look, it depends a little bit on your, on your sales motion. Uh, th there are examples of companies. We actually work with a company. Um, I'm sure you've heard of them called Figma. I, I know you all have worked, uh, with them as well. Yeah. They just do a really, really terrific job of understanding from a pricing and packaging perspective, what incentive somebody has to want to upgrade to a, you know, higher priced um, tier because they, they, they know as an example, a certain type of usage means they need a certain feature. And so you can get really, really sophisticated with not necessarily telling them that they need something, but understanding so deeply that you can send them the right information or have the right conversation with them by highlighting the benefit that you know, they need without calling out specifically as an example that you saw them do something Yes. Uh, and so there's a little bit of, I would say that's more of an art than a science. Yeah. Uh, the best companies, what they tend to do is deeply understand. And I would say, um, if everybody in your company can have a shared understanding of the customer and a deep understanding of the customer that allows for a much better conversation and for you to talk about the things that are much more close to what the customer needs. Uh, and I would say that's always a better approach philosophically, uh, than telling them that you saw them do something very specifically and therefore, mm. um, you know, one plus one equals two. So Alex, now who owns generic, typically who owns PLG inside a company? So you have the VP of growth, which you were at one time, you have marketing, which says, you know, we'd like to play a part in that. You have the sales force, which is ready to grab the signals and they probably want a piece of it. Yeah. And then which you also referred to everything that you talked about, you know, client success could use it also. I know that your company Endgame focuses more on, yeah. you know, sales ready uh, signals, but can you talk about typically who in the organization owns PLG and then how do they interface with the other disciplines? Yeah. It's a, it's a good question because everybody I think uh, thinks that they own it. Right. Uh, that's why I'm look, asking at, at the, at the end of the day, the CEO owns it because the CEO effectively uh, gets to, you know, um, prioritize PLG across all functions. So that's the easiest answer. I would say, look to, un to understand um, the reason why this is so tricky. Let's take a look at, you know, how a go-to-market motion operates sort of before PLG and then after. Oh, and I think perfect. That's help, help set the stage. All right. So let's look at a traditional kind of go-to-market motion. You've got marketing that creates leads uh, and then, you know, an SDR uh, that sort of works those. The SDR then hands over to an AE. AE closes the deal, brings in a SE. Uh, then the deal closes. It goes over to a CSM. And then there's potentially an account manager. And then there's post-sales uh, you know, technical um, solutions as an example. So if you look at it from that perspective, you have a lot of handoffs 
And so because you have a lot of handoffs, you have a lot more clarity around roles and responsibilities because uh, they're sort of isolated. And so it's, it's easy. You have tools actually in ecosystems that are built around particular stages of the customer journey in that way. And then you just hand off and, and, and things kind of work, right? Um, in a PLG motion, what's different is everybody's interfacing on the same product data because the product journey is the same across all those various handoffs. So yes. let me give you an example. Um, I sign up for a um, product and then an AE and an SDR and a CSM could all interface with me, but my journey is the product journey. And so that entire team is operating against that shared source of truth, which makes it more multi-threaded, maybe a little bit more complex, but also easier for the customer to understand where in the process they are, because for them, they're just at various stages of product adoption. Now, uh, that's kind of the maybe kind of before and after sort of orientation. So what does that mean for different teams, like say marketing or, or client success or customer success as an example? Well, you still have to get people to sign up for a product. So marketing still does that. Now your life cycle is more in product now than it used to be. So life cycle, life cycle marketing moves a little bit away from, uh, you know, just kind of general out of product life cycle and more into helping the product journey be more productive and more effective. So you sort of see a transition from a life cycle marketer to a growth marketer in many cases, uh, where marketing is basically helping people identify um, certain areas of the product that they could use, helping them, you know, use those features, things of that nature. On the uh, client or customer success side, there's primarily two things that are a little bit different. One is sort of client success or customer success actually happens before the sale. So when somebody signs up from an onboarding perspective, you'll see teams ensure that the onboarding experience is better earlier in the life cycle. And then the other piece, which is a little bit different depending on the company is whether or not um, client success as an example does expansion and renewal mm -hmm. because the motion is a little bit more like a more traditional uh, client or customer success motion. A lot of customer success teams will actually drive the renewal and the expansion. In some cases that moves over to the account team who's basically running a sales process. Uh, and so that really depends on the company. Some, some companies have uh, sales do that. Some companies have uh, success to it. But a lot of companies are trying to get, you know, not just continue to add heads in client success. So they're trying to use, you know, PLG type tools in order to get triggers of, let's say improper behavior of their product so that they can, they can know what to call on and when to call the customer. Right. Yeah, that's spot on. I, I think that's uh, the, the, the bigger point I think that you're making is that uh, companies are trying to do uh, more with less across their go-to-market organization. So they're, they're looking for various ways to be more efficient and more effective by using uh, product data from a success perspective, but also from a sales perspective. So um, from a success perspective, uh, you know, look at leading indicators of churn or if usage is going down, like tell somebody to go take a look at that immediately or the right features aren't being used as an example is a very common way to think about right. that problem. Uh, you, but you also kind of, you know, apply that earlier in the life cycle from a sales perspective and say, you, you know, who the big customer and who to go talk to. So why would you spend your time, you know, focusing on accounts that are unlikely to convert or are not going to be good customers? Uh, if you're, uh, 
if your book is incredibly large, you start seeing ways of, you know, prioritizing your time. Like, let me focus on my top 5% or top 10% of things I need to do today. Because from a product led perspective, your usage is changing so quickly. You're able to kind of narrow the world and narrow the focus on the things that really just need attention immediately versus all the things that you could do. Uh, that also bleeds into how you think about structuring your sales team and like where you invest resources in terms of sales versus, uh, you know, success as well. Uh, because if you can have incredibly efficient reps that are able to manage these very, very large books of business, because they have a prioritization mechanism, uh, that allows them to, to narrow their world, that's incredibly impactful. And, and, and revenue leaders are, are looking at ways to improve that, uh, particularly, um, you know, with, uh, with today's market. So let me ask you just more direct on this. Uh, No, you gave a great explanation, but I just want to go. I'm trying to educate the audience a little bit on the VP of growth and what specific role does that VP of uh, growth play in an organization? Because that only came about, what, 10 years ago, really, when you started seeing VPs of growth? Yeah, I'll I'll give, look, I'll give the the, uh, sort of, candid, slightly cynical answer. And then I'll give the, here's what the purpose of that role is. Uh, Growth is very, very cross-functional and it allows a CEO to bring in a uh, cross-functional generalist and apply growth tactics to any part of the business uh, with the idea that you can overlay a new function and fix all your existential and fundamental business challenges. So that's the, the sort of cynical, it's hard to do if you have a product problem uh, applying growth can help, but more often than not, you have a product problem. If you have a sales problem, you can apply growth. Uh, but more often than not, it's better to fix a sales problem. And so it's a little bit tricky because it is a cross-functional role in nature. Uh, and so cross-functional um, problems, I guess I would say, are the biggest challenges, meaning I think most um, most business challenges are cross-functional in nature. So it, it sort of depends on how you want to solve it. Now, how does uh, growth or the idea of growth apply and why do CEOs and leaders hire uh, VPs of growth? And that's because you are able to look at a self-serve acquisition funnel. So if we were to go back to our initial definition of PLG, you have acquisition, you have retention, you have monetization, you have expansion. A growth leader will systematically look at any part of that funnel and optimize it quantitatively. And so the the growth persona will effectively find levers and exploit those levers to drive drive growth for the business, which I do think is very, very effective um, if it's properly focused. Uh, Because PLG companies have to optimize their product funnel, you hire growth leaders and the growth leaders will kind of fall into two buckets. One is growth product management. The other is growth marketing. Mm. Uh, so in some cases, you'll see both of those roll up into the same growth persona. In some cases, you'll have growth marketing, which is you know sort of modern life cycle marketing with a few other things uh, thrown into it, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And then the growth product uh, piece will roll up into product management, which is really focused on making the product journey um, convert better, if that makes sense. Yes. Alex, how do, so you said, I want to go back to something you said, Johnny's answer, uh, uh, 
an answer to Johnny was who owns product-led growth and you said the CEO does. <laughs> My experience with technical founders, um, common perception is your product should be so good that it should sell itself. Yep. And we work with, you know, training sales organizations and what have you. And, and so there's this, there's this um, uh, bias, if you will, around that. Um, from that perspective, are you starting from a deficit? So if that's the person who owns it, they're really tied and, and uh, you know, the technical founder, they're really tied to the success of the product, the history of the product. Is that the right person to be owning this conversation? I think the... Then I have a follow-on. Good, Go good, 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 good. Look, I think, I think the culture is He's changing. being very careful with this answer. No, not at all, actually. I think most okay. CEOs care much more about the business and making the business successful than they do about anything else, uh, as do founders. I do think, look, I, I, I started our conversation with, when I, was, when I was a designer, you know, many years ago, so over a decade ago, I said, let's build products that don't suck so that we don't need salespeople. And I think that was a very naive perspective. And I learned... I learned that it doesn't work that well when I had to go and figure out how to sell. So I sort of transitioned from a designer CEO at the time to a sales CEO because that's what the business needed. Yeah. And I think that you're seeing a cultural shift, uh, which is in many cases led by even these PLG companies at scale, where if you look at any public company that started as PLG, I can't think of a single one that hasn't added a enterprise sales motion if they sell right. to businesses. Right. Right. So you start looking at these visionary companies, you know, look at the Zooms, the data dogs, the Dropboxes, the, the, the first generation of companies that really made PLG into something um, well understood and, and popular. And those companies are all employing fairly significant sales teams. So you already have the example of, Hey, I know that at a certain point I have to do it. And so then the question becomes, well, at what point in your, in your journey, do you start adding uh, sales? And that it becomes more of a when question than an if question. And so then you get a little bit more, I think maybe pushback on, do we need it at 5 million? Do we need it at 10 million? Do we need it at 50 million or 80 million in ARR? And that's where I think, from my experience, more CEOs are going to have some pushback because maybe we're too early. I haven't met that many CEOs who, who, who are building a software product for businesses who don't think that they need sales at a certain point in time. It's just a matter of when and how. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, my follow-up question is, if that's the case, how do you, um, how do you, well, let me just ask it simpler. Is it easier to add sales to PLG or is it easier for a sales-led company to create PLG? What have been your experiences? Definitely easier to start with PLG and layer in sales. But any sales-led company that I've come across for the most part is trying to figure out a way to shoehorn a PLG motion yes. into their existing go-to-market. And the reason is because the benefits are so incredibly clear, particularly as you look at some of these larger companies that have very aggressive logo 
uh, acquisition goals um, and and basically CAC uh, KPIs that they have to hit. It's very very difficult to to do that unless you apply some of the PLG tactics that we talked about earlier. And so you're seeing it kind of come from both sides. Easier to layer on sales, but in many cases necessary for survival uh, to do it the other way, even if not easy. And I guess I would say um, you know most of the uh, most of the valuable things in life are not easy. So maybe easy is not the the right dimension. Uh, valuable uh, and important, I think, uh, is the case across all. Yeah. And that's given all the parameters that you mentioned earlier about, about your product and whether or not it's a good fit for PLG. Yeah. I mean, look, if you don't have people that are using your product that you can use from a sales perspective, there's not much Endgame can do about it. It's sort of, we'll go get people to use your product so that we could show you something uh, if they're not in there, there's just not much we can do other than tell people to prioritize getting people into the product. I mean, all product-led sales is, is really focusing sales effort on people that use the product. And so, you know, using the product is sort of the precursor and, and that's a must. Otherwise there's not, there's not much you can do with yeah. the information. There's no information to do something with. Right. So that's, that's the kind of necessary piece. Now, uh, you know, we do we do see a lot of companies that are sort of early in that process, meaning maybe it's not fully PLG, maybe they have a free trial, maybe they're experimenting with, you know, proof of concept uh, sort of processes without even letting somebody sign up on their own. So those are those are a few of the kind of like early indicators that we'll see. Um, and from that perspective, it is very possible to get up and running quickly and to uh, to invest appropriately uh, in the earlier stages. And a lot of what I've seen there is really orienting around the right team uh, and and the right sort of cultural center within the organization to sort of kick some of those initiatives or some of those experiments off. So one of the failure modes maybe to kind of just call this out that we've seen is let's enable the entire sales org on you know PLG or product with sales or whatever it is, that does not work super well. Mm -hmm. And so if you can isolate, if you can find a part of the organization or isolate a specific team or a group or a product, early adopters that just believe that this is the way that the world should work and are able to go and start experimenting and building a playbook that you can then roll out to other teams after it's sort of been proved out that that does work and, and can work. And I think the the ability to really quickly experiment with different approaches early on with a small team that just is smart, data-driven and cares is probably your uh, the closest thing you'll get to a silver bullet, even though it's by and it's a silver bullet. Yeah. Now, Alex, don't, I just want to go back um, yeah. one step to where Johnny asked PLG and then sales or sales and then PLG. Yeah. And you also, you talked about, you know, different revenue uh, levels where they might bring in sales if they started with PLG, but wouldn't it really matter more about the type of customer that you're calling on and whether or not there was expansion, large expansion opportunities in there than really just the revenue level, or is it a combination of both revenue level and the type of customers expansion capabilities where you could put the sales force in? No, it's a good question. I think the 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 simplest way to think about it probably is um if you're under 50 million, doesn't make sense to do anything other than get to 50 million using product data. So it's more of a philosophical, maybe priority question. Okay. Uh, and maybe that's how people slice it or, or how I've seen people slice it. I think what you're calling out though is 
probably more correct, which is uh, looking at the opportunity of the business and figuring out where the biggest opportunity is or where the biggest levers are. And to your point, I do think that most companies actually probably wait too long uh, because they don't look at it in the way that you just mentioned, uh, which is to say, from an acquisition perspective, sure, keep that PLG. But from an expansion and a cross-sell perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, start prioritizing some of those tactics and strategies sooner, I think is, is spot on. Right, because a lot of companies start very with really small customers. At least most tech companies, small customers. Then they try to go mid market, and then they try to go large. But yeah. sometimes, some some products I've seen can go large pretty quickly, and it could be huge expansion opportunities in those accounts. And you wouldn't really want to hold back and believe that PLG is going to proliferate through the entire account, unless it's a product like you know Zoom or maybe Slack or something. But you know, more more difficult product to expand into the organization. I think that's spot on. Uh, I think this is probably one of the, one of the things I would advise uh, CEOs and revenue leaders on to start earlier on particularly the use cases that you just called out. Uh, and, and those are not often the first ones because again, you know, coming back to dopamine hits, if you go and look at your free uh, product or you look at new business, it's easier to kind of get that, you know, quick, quick, um, uh, quick dopamine hit because you're you're getting into a deal that you wouldn't otherwise have seen, but a lot of the value is actually in you know taking a 10k deal and turning it into a 100k deal or a 500k deal because you've already landed it. But there are ways to sort of expand, cross sell, um, and grow that account, uh, which is not the first place that a lot of these companies start, right. but likely should be much more consistently where uh, companies. Um, uh, start with using PLG tactics. Yeah. Cause a lot of times you see small companies that, or, or they start really small and they have a whole bunch of logos, yeah. but you've never heard of any of the logos and then there's no expansion opportunities. And then they, yeah. the company say, uh Oh, you know, we need to go up market and then they go up market. And now there are companies that they can get into and they also have expansion opportunities. So then PLG really makes sense for them along with sales. But John, you want to ask a question and ask Alex? I do. So I'm, with a guest like this, one of the struggles that we, that the audience has is Alex is so well-versed in this topic. Mm-hmm. I want to give you a chance, Alex, to talk. Well, we about were only going to bring the best on, Johnny. <laughs> no we doubt about it. And, and, and we now were going to bring somebody that was half-baked in the subject. I mean, I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm still, I don't even understand half the notes I'm taking. So uh, the, the, I want to make sure we get the opportunity to have Alex be very specific around Endgame. And now, you know, you've been so gracious to come on. Can you tell us specifically? And I think I heard in one of the prep calls that you did with us is that you have a tendency to know so much about the industry and building more products. I think one of your companies that you were at, they told you, hey, Alex, we don't we don't need to build any more products. Or And that's just kind of your mindset is that you you engross yourself in the problems at hand. Can you be very specific now and talk about Endgame? Yeah. What problems do you solve and how do you solve them? And how does a company engage with you? And what does that look like? Because I think by now our listeners are saying, okay, I want some of Alex. All right. Uh, thank you for asking that question. Yeah. Uh, we help revenue leaders identify the product signals that are most 
correlated to conversion and expansion. We use data science and machine learning to do a lot of that heavy lifting. And then we present sales teams with very easy to understand insight so that sales teams can close bigger deals faster and do it with few resources. Um, basically after using Endgame for a short amount of time, your sales team is going to be a lot more productive uh, because they're spending time on the right opportunities and the right people within those accounts. Uh, and they are uh, accelerating deals through the sales cycle um, within a short amount of time. Awesome. Okay. So, but now let's talk about, I get end game. We know what it does. You come in and speak to us and now I want to implement it. What, what should I be prepared uh, for my organization? You know, if I'm going to implement end game, do I need to hire any new people? What people do I need to have in place? What systems should I think about interfacing to those types of questions? Alex? Great question. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one of the things that is, a positive is most companies have product data that's sitting somewhere in a data warehouse mm. or it's already being collected. So your product team, as they've already set up the product and done some basic tracking is likely sending a lot of the information that you need to your data warehouse. All of the sales activity already lives in Salesforce. So typically Endgame will come in and take your product usage data, combine it with your CRM data, and basically take the existing data that you already have and make it valuable for the organization because the data is there, but unlocking that for a non-technical audience in a way that's specifically oriented around accelerating your go-to-market motion is what's really, really hard. Uh, so from a capability perspective, typically we just need to work with someone on the data team who sets up data and then a RevOps um, person who basically sets up Salesforce and then the sales team is able to get in. And typically within a very short amount of time, they're able to identify either a few new signals or new sales opportunities that they didn't even know about. And then the first sellers become wildly successful and effective. And then they tell their friends about it and then it spreads like wildfire. But again, getting in with those first few reps is really, really important because they sort of set the stage for everyone else. And uh, you typically have everything you need. And I think a lot of people think they need more or more instrumentation or better data. Uh, nobody's data is good uh, or perfect, but there's typically a lot of it already sitting around. So take what you've got and unlock it. What about now, the strategic questions, Alex? Go ahead, go ahead Jenny. The strategic questions that you've pointed out about where people are, where the usage comes from, what's the persona? Um, what should the persona be? Where are the expansion opportunities? Um, how do you do that for a customer? Yeah. So uh, we have a capability called uh, AutoTune, uh, which uh, sort of productizes some of those strategic questions, if you will, where yeah. you basically highlight a particular path, uh, like a conversion path uh, or yeah. a business path. So I'll give you a very specific example. Figma, again, just to bring it back. Uh, they have professional uh, plans and they want to convert companies who use pro to companies who use org, uh, which is their higher priced, uh, package, right? So just as an example, uh, so Endgame would then look at that path, then analyze the data and then highlight the signals that are correlated to conversion and just show those two reps. 
So yes, it requires a strategic conversation to understand what the business priorities are, but most revenue leaders and executives have a good sense of what they want to do. It's just difficult to do it. If you said, Hey, I want more money out of this segment. Uh, you know, there's probably a little bit of back and forth on that, which we, you know, um, talk about as part of our engagement, but the hard part is really, okay, great. Now, how do I actually do this? Yeah. And that's where end game, uh, focuses is where we spend a disproportionate amount of our energy is sort of taking the kind of strategic goals, if you will, you know, pushing back on a few of them, kind of helping scope, scope them down to things that are easily achievable within a short amount of time. Uh, and then identifying the signals and, you know, letting, letting the early sales team get some wins, because once you sort of prove out some of those early wins, it just becomes an easier conversation in terms of, um, you know, expanding from that, uh, early state of success. So Alex, earlier on, you touched on some, when you were giving examples, some product signals. Yeah. But could you walk us through some maybe, you know, standard product signals that that across your customers, you kind of start to see some of the same product signals that they should be, or standard metrics that they should be paying attention to, just so our audience gets an idea of what a bunch of those product signals and metrics look like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, we talked about, you know, champion signals, uh, somebody who invites a lot of other users, mm-hmm. another person that you want to talk to, or a user level signal is maybe somebody who's a billing contact across five different teams or 10 different teams that gives you a really good person to talk to. That's basically putting a credit card into every product plan. So you can go and, you know, have a conversation with them. They're effectively the billing contact, right? Um, from a conversion perspective, you tend to look at signals like pro to org or free to paid. And you're looking for particular features that are being used that are indicative that, that, um, uh, that user or group of users wants to convert to a higher price plan. Uh, so again, just using the Figma example, uh, if you want to convert to the org tier, why do you buy the org tier? It's because they have an incredible design system capability that people really, really love because it's an incredible product. So how do you look at things that people are doing that could mean that they need that capability? So if somebody is duplicating a lot of files, as an example, their workspace is probably going to get messy, in which case it makes sense to use that design system feature to make the workspace less messy. So it is specific from company to company, but it's basically looking at your product journey, understanding what it is that you, um, uh, you need based on what you're doing. Now, there are also some simpler examples of, uh, basically trends or changes. So if somebody uses the product a lot and that usage goes down, that's a signal. Mm -hmm. If somebody's Mm -hmm. not using the product a lot, usage goes up. That's a signal. If you add new team members, that's a, that's a good signal. If you're starting to use certain features that you know are correlated to long-term success, that's really, really beneficial. If you're adding integrations as an example, or you've added a certain number of integrations, or you've done a certain number of things, um, those are all really, really good signals. You're basically looking for leading indicators of, hey, this is this is a good reason for someone to buy based on what they're doing. And you keep track of all the standard metrics also like, okay, this many users entered the free tier. Yep. Here's how many can, you know, are still using the product. Here's how many converted to paid. Here's how many went from paid to, 
you know, expansion, you also collect all the standard metrics also. Yeah, that's, that's exactly correct. Actually, what you just described is spot on. So we basically break uh, users into different segments um, and look at different conversion paths. And the ones that you called out are pretty common. Uh, free to paid, paid to pro, uh, pro to enterprise is sort of a, a pretty consistent way to think about the orientation. So Alex, what are Cap and I not asking you and you're sitting there saying <laughs> these two guys want to educate their audience, but they're not asking me question A or B. Yeah, uh, no, the, your questions are terrific. I think maybe let me answer that with what I think people might get intimidated by. And so maybe the question is, why is this so intimidating or how do we make this less intimidating? And do you think it's intimidating for Salesforce? I mean, some Salesforce is here. Oh, we're implementing PLG. So you had yeah. instead of PLG, then sales. You had sales, then PLG. And a lot of salespeople think, oh my gosh, this, this thing's going to put me out of business. So, yeah. So I think what you call things is what makes it more intimidating. And so what you're calling out right now is right. I guess my point is, look, if you call it PLG and then you call it sales, it's really difficult to sort of translate product terms to revenue terms and understand how those fit together. That's, I would say the biggest thing that I see leaders take a little bit of time to percolate and process on is like, what does this mean for me? How do I like tie into this? And so maybe one way of thinking about it is look, if you're running a sales motion of any kind, product data can make you better. It can make you faster. It can make you more efficient. And it's just a net value add. And if I were to kind of like give you a slightly maybe updated tweak or orientation to the, to the language, not just for you, but for the, for the market and for the, for the leadership teams I've worked in interface with as a whole, it's, how do you just make your job more likely to be successful by taking whatever you can get from the product and accelerating your existing motion? So let me, let me give you sort of a, an orientation on that. You look at tools like Clary, they're great. They give you a lot of context on rep activity, right? You look at tools like Gong, they're great. They give you a lot of context on what customers are saying. Mm -hmm. Look at tools like Endgame. We're showing you empirically what the customer is doing. So it would be crazy for you to not just look at that information and augment your sales process with behavior of actual users and customers in production that is empirical and quantifiable. No doubt. So if you think about it from that perspective, it doesn't have to be as scary as PLG and it doesn't require as much surface area. Yes, those are PLG tactics, but I have found that it's easier to digest when it really is closely tied to what a revenue leader does and how they think about their purview. And I would say... That's probably the biggest 80-20 in terms of sort of tying it back to something that you as a revenue leader can move the needle on today. Are there any implications, Alex, as it relates to an uncertain, which is becoming, it seems, more certain economy or shaky economy in 2023? Are there any implications of that that, um, that we haven't discussed today? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, 
in tough times, you focus on your existing base. So as much as you can, do you have any users that you can convert into customers that are already using your product? Can you take your customers? Can you expand them? Can you retain them? Uh, you know, that's sort of a natural, I think, body language shift. It's just harder to go after net new business, particularly when belts are tightening and not every vendor is, is in the market to buy new tools. So I would say that's kind of the first piece. So orienting around your existing base is hugely beneficial in general, but particularly when times are tough. Really those signals, I think, John, that you called out earlier, like what are those expansion uh, signals that you can kind of get in front of earlier, uh, even renewal signals, right? Or, or, or negative signals, meaning they're, they're likely not going to get in front of that earlier. And then I'd say from a rep productivity perspective, being able to handle more accounts with fewer reps, meaning more reps doesn't always mean more revenue. So how do you really focus the best reps on the right accounts and the right stakeholders at the right time? Uh, because the product is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, basically taking advantage of that is just going to make your sales team a lot more efficient. Uh, and, and you'll be able to, again, kind of do a lot more with a, with a smaller team, which I think is what, what most people are trying to figure out right now is how do you just make people a lot more effective? And it's not because necessarily you're looking to have fewer people It's because you just need to do more, uh, meaning your, your, your bar is higher and the, the goals that you have to hit are just going to be a little bit harder. So how do you just make everybody much more efficient? Sounds yeah. like end game is more relevant today than you've probably ever been. Yes. I would like to say I am, uh, not a, um, huge fan of things going poorly in the world around us, uh, even if it's beneficial for us, but this particular, uh, market environment for end game, um, allows us to deliver a ton of value. Alex. Holy smokes. You are unbelievable. <laughs> and what I really loved about you is how realistic you are about what PLG, you know, really does, how you have to implement it, you know, what segments you're going to have to look at, whereas sometimes people think it's just a panacea, like, you know, we're going to just do PLG and it's going to sell everywhere. So I love through this conversation, how you constantly realistic about, you know, where its place is and where its place is in different companies. So thank you very much for that. And I'm sure our audience got a lot out of the discussion. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I have two questions for the, for the both of you. Uh-oh. Now it's, now it's my turn. Two questions. One is, uh, which one of you is getting a PLG tattoo first? That'll be Kaplan because he's wearing a lumber jacket. All right. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the second uh, is uh, when, do, uh, when do I get to walk you through an endgame demo? It would be good to sort of like show you what this looks like in practice to add even, even more. I got to tell you what I think would be, it, it, what I think would be awesome. I was thinking about the show notes on this episode, Johnny, are yeah. going to be, people are going to be clamoring for um, right. the show notes. So I'm wondering if we could build something into um, the podcast show notes that uh, maybe uh, ties, uh, ties. Or even have Alex on again. I don't mind having Alex on yeah. again, having him take us, walk us through a little demo. I'd be happy to. We're going to get a ton that. of, we're going to get a ton of feedback from our listeners, Alex, because, and I think we're, the, maybe when we have you back, the lens <clears throat> that we're going to cover is like from the individual contributors perspective, where, what are characteristics of good companies that 
you know, not necessarily the names of the companies, but companies that do X, Y, and Z is probably a good place for me to be. Um, if yeah. I'm a, you know, VP of growth role, or if I'm an individual contributor or what have you, I'd love to put that lens around it because you interact with so many, so many uh, different companies. Look, you are better than advertised. Uh, Johnny said, Hey, we got our PLG person and, um, I just really, really want to thank you. And thank you for, like Johnny said, I think the way that you articulated um, the problems that not only Endgame is solving, but that are out there and therefore why Endgame exists um, were very, very clear and uh, and well articulated. You were an awesome guest. Thank you both. Uh, it truly uh, has been an honor and I uh, can't wait for the next one. Thank you, Alex. We'll have you back again. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.